This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety May all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen. Those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world.
now it's time for meditation. So we come into a suitable posture. Posture that we can try and hold for the meditation. Set up the mind that we don't want to react to any kind of feelings in the meditation. Just let go of feelings. And bring up inspiration in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Inspiration in our meditation object. Not like we stop our relaxing body, making sure posture is correct. Like Ajahn Chah said, just send the mind through the body from the top of the head down to the soles of the feet and back up again. Just ensuring that all the various parts of the body are relaxed. I'm just aware of them as they are. Good enough. If there's any difficult parts in the body, just try and relax around it. Not averse to anything. Just allowing the body to become still and at ease. Body, relax their physical eyes. We either have the five hindrances or we have the seven factors of awakening, which is meditation. So are we getting lost in hindrance, going out here and there? Doubting or restless or worried or angry, sense desire. We give up the hindrances, relax the eyes. And the answer was it's our mind flowing out into the world. Give up the past, the future. And even the present, all these stories we make up, just give it all up. 
and rely on any of these things. Just place our attention on our meditation theme. You see the rest is just puppet shows and stories, plays in the mind. You don't have to get involved to cut the strings. Close the door to the theatre. Now if we have a meditation object, such as being with the breath, or Buddha with the breath, or mentally reciting Buddha, whatever our theme is, we're determined to be diligent and calm and balanced in applying ourselves to our meditation. Diligent apprentice. Be one who is content with building causes, not attaching to results. The Buddha is intense. Buddha is free from tension. Comfortable, content with things as they are, not proud and demanding in nature. Just picking up and holding to our theme of meditation. Not a care in the world. Sense of luminosity and ease.
begin with meditation. Those who wish may continue to be with the object of meditation during the talk. And for those who wish may come out of meditation. So it's important we have uh, role models in our practice so we understand um, like at the time of the Buddha many great lay disciples uh, as I've spoken about before and there's some that the Buddha recommended to emulate and so by knowing our station of existence and what we're focused on having good examples that will help lead us upwards so for the monks, for example, we have Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Moggallana, Mahamoggallana. And um, so we have to understand that those disciples at the time of the Buddha, you know, they had excellent parami. They were often beings who practiced for many lifetimes. And so by having examples like that, it really shows us what's actually the, the potential of our uh, spiritual capabilities and um, like for the monks the Buddha didn't say to emulate the Buddha the Buddha said to emulate Venerable Sariputra and Venerable Mahamogalana and so the Buddha from the time of his awakening sorry from the time of his determination to be a Buddha to his awakening was four asankayas and a hundred thousand kalpas that's like four immeasurable periods and a hundred thousand universes of practice before he maybe an immeasurable period is a million universes, for example, who knows how long there are four million one hundred thousand universe cycles, and we say one universe cycle maybe you know I don't know a trillion or hundreds of trillions of years long just for one universe cycle. Who knows? Because there's a period of expansion and contraction. And so there's this very long period of time. And then the great disciples of the Buddha that I just mentioned, they practice for one asankhaya and a hundred thousand kalpas. So about a quarter of that time they were practicing through many lives, perfecting themselves, uh, following the bodhisattva. So they so that's why the Buddha said that they're like the horns of the bull and the many are like the hairs. So it's incomparable to compare other beings. And so the bhikkhus were the foremost uh, field for practicing at the time of the Buddha. And so they were the great uh, disciples to emulate. But whatever station of existence somebody had, 
they were um, you know that's just whether you're a lay woman a, a lay man a monk or a nun practicing at the time of the Buddha or practicing now we have the same defilements you know, there's greed there's infatuation hatred and delusion clouding the mind of the unenlightened beings and uh, and no matter what we do, uh, either we're stuck in the world or we're seeing, seeing into the Four Noble Truths. Because if we're stuck in the world, all that's going to lead is to more worldliness. You know, there's jobs and families and birth and cooking and farming and all the various trades you can have. And, and then sometimes in a world expansion, there's not going to be much water. All the waters of the earth will be dried up. Existence is going to be difficult. All the forests get cut down. So in, in this period of time the Buddha is practiced, uh, imagine how many worlds there have been in that time. Imagine how many beings there have been in that time. And, and so, as I've said before, the, this, the Buddha said if our bone, if we could get our bones together like they didn't crumble away, and our you could fill a Himalayan mountain full of our bones just just in one aeon, just, just in one universe cycle. So, you know, think of how, how much attachment that is, every single birth. You know, we have attachment to our mother or our father, our grandparents, our, if you have children, you have even stronger attachment to children, and then, uh, you know, partners and friends and jobs. And so the problem with existence is the Buddha said as far back as he saw, and so you could think the Buddha is a pure mind, so there's nothing greater than the mind of a Buddha, like that's the pinnacle of perfection. And the Buddha said something like it, as far back as you can see, you know, at that point, as far back as he could see, you know, there's just more birth, old age, sickness and death. And the problem is back there, that nobody, you don't know anybody anymore. All those beings, as far back as you go, you don't have any even similar karma anymore. So it, all of your attachments are totally different. So that's why we literally say that there is just action and the result of action. Because when you look at things in the scheme of things, all there is is change. All there is is uncertainty. All there is is continuance of suffering. And so the the lightest of the analogies the Buddha had is it's like a dream. We're just stuck in a dream. And, 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 and enlightenment is waking up. Uh, and then oh, the other similes that he has uh, are much stronger than that. And uh, but wherever we are in our journey, we just have to see that, like Lumpur Tate said, the tendency of the mind is to degrade, is to go downhill. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we yoking ourselves to wholesome qualities, to kusala dhammas? How are we yoking ourselves to higher and higher states? What are our examples? You know, how are we gaining that mindfulness bit by bit, that inspiration in the dharma bit by bit? Like uh, I've been recent, like Lumpur Don said, uh, it's like a, a turtle. And a turtle is sure of its steps, one step at a time, it never falls over. And so building our practice 
as much as we try, we have to look at the fundamentals. We have to grow things very steadily and very surely so we don't fall over. And so, so as much as we try, at some point, we have, like Ajahn Chah said, we have to focus on steady practice. So steady practice is that determination, whether things are up or down, whether things are good or bad, whether it's hot or cold, whether we're lazy or diligent, whatever it is, we just overcome that and we practice anyway. So we don't believe the moods of the mind, as Lumpur Tui said. We don't believe the stories of the mind. We cut off all of those things and we just focus on the one step at a time and one more step. And so in the Thai forest tradition, they say Buddha. Buddha, as the one who knows, means sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And if you look at the gradual training in the suttas of the Buddha, you have the very first thing, is knowing going forward, knowing returning, knowing drinking, knowing eating and chewing, knowing sitting down, knowing standing up. Everything we do, there's a knowing. And so the idea of the Buddha, of the mantra, is because the more we develop that mantra from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, we're going to have mindfulness. At that time, we're not going to be following the moods of our mind, the stories of our mind, the preparations of our mind. We're not going to get involved with worldliness and, and because we're associating more with this mindfulness. And so mindfulness is like the protector. Mindfulness is like the great guardian. And, and so, but it, it's not easy. So like Lumpur Don said, it's like starts with trips. You know, like the tap starts with trips. But as we build up the meditation and the mindfulness, so the more we're mindful through the day, then, then we build up the power of our meditation. So first, and we can meditate with clear mindfulness for five minutes. Then one day for 15 minutes at a time. And then one day for half an hour at a time. And so on. So we build up the power of our ability to actually be mindfully with our meditation object. Because the more we have that mindfulness, then the mind is going to refine. Then it's going to be easy at times to be with the breath. And Lumpur Don also said, then you need to know also that there's different tools. So obviously if you're with the breath, that's a much more refined thing. So at times you also have to be aware of which tool to use. So the, the Buddha is quite a coarse object. So at times, you know, the mind will refine, and so the object will change. So this is why it's important to follow the teachings of the, the great masters, because they've really struggled, they've done the work themselves, and, and they've shown us the path. Uh, when I was, before I became a monk, I came across the collected, sorry, the teachings from 1979, when Ajahn Chah went to America. They were in Thai and English. You can find them if you look for them. And it's when he, he went to America and taught meditation and, and, and had interviews and a few talks recorded. And, and, and by having access to these great beings, I mean, not only have they fallen down many times along the way, but eventually they found what steady practice is. Eventually they found what right practice is. And so they show us the way of how to actually 
be sincere in developing mindfulness, to be sincere in the fundamentals of the path. And the more we come to practice, we will develop our own skillful means and our own ways of actually putting up with Dukkha Vedana. So we learn this patience and endurance that sometimes, you know, when we're med- meditating, sharp pains may might assail our body. We're able just to look on with these and build up our indifference to them. Because by the time a being is an arahant, they've seen through feeling. So feeling is just, there's three types of feeling. There's pleasant feeling, there's unpleasant feeling, and there's feelings which are neither unpleasant nor pleasant. So dukkha, suffering, sukha, happiness, and adukkha, asukha, not suffering, not happiness. There are three types of feelings. And what usually happens in our life is we attach to happiness, reverse to suffering, and we're ignorant to everything in between. And so what we're training, the more we practice, we develop, along with the practice, the Brahma-Vaharas, so the divine emotions, just so we have like good mental states, and and as we can actually start to overcome these feelings, and we start to see feeling is just like the Buddha said, it's just like a bubble. You know, when a raindrop falls on the river Ganges, sometimes a bubble appears. And a bubble will arise, move along, change, and then it will pop, it will cease. And so whatever feeling, happiness, it's a bubble, arising, changing, ceasing. Suffering, it's arising, changing, ceasing. Or neither suffering nor happiness feeling, it's arising, changing, ceasing. And so what we're learning to do is to be able to have patience, to be able to have endurance, to be able that sometimes, yes, the, the peace and the calm can be very profound. This is the result of developing seclusion. This is the result of developing our meditation. And we shouldn't attach to that, because that too is uncertain. But what is certain is that we can slowly build up our practice, like that turtle, one step at a time, one sure footing after another sure footing, that we have this steady practice. And then, to make our practice well-rounded, we should know what our station of existence is. So we know the Eightfold Path, we know how we're applying ourselves to the various factors, and we're willing to look inside ourselves and see what deficiency we have. And we can even seek out the wise, our wise friends in the holy life, our wise friends in the Dhamma, and seek their advice, and, and be willing to show our faults, to be willing to show ourselves as we really are so that we can grow. Some, some people are arrogant, some people are angry, some people have, have lots of passion and infatuation, some people have lots of laziness. Whatever it is, sometimes it's hard to see our own faults. 
And so this is why we need wise people. Because a part of the practice is actually willing to go against the grain, you know, to go against the way of the world. Because the way of the world, it just leads to more birth, old age, sickness and death, more pain, lamentation and despair. So living in the world, you can still practice in the world. But what we do by living by Dharma, we're emptying our attachment to things. So if people die, we understand. Yes, death comes. If possessions break and get destroyed, we understand. Yes, that's that nature. If we get sick, terribly sick, with deathly pains, we understand. Yes, this is a very big problem of existence. And I, too, am of this nature. To become old, to become sick, and to die. And so we use the peace and the mindfulness to remind ourselves of the Dharma at the right time. So that way, we're not following the moods of the mind. But it has to grow on this foundation of peace and this foundation of mindfulness. And so it's not easy. At Lumpur too, he said, we have to understand that this is not a game, developing the mind. Now, it's a very difficult thing to do. Maybe the most difficult of all the things there is to do is to develop one's own mind. Now, things in the world are easy compared to developing the mind. And so we have to be willing to put up with difficulty. We have to be willing to look at the other side of things, turn things around, turn them upside down, and actually see what their real nature is. Because if we just go the way of the world, then when things change, we will suffer. We'll be born again, and we will suffer again. And so the time of a Buddha is a very unique time that the teachings for enlightenment are open or the teachings for higher and higher spiritual path are open. Now, all beings who became Buddhas and Pacheka Buddhas and great disciples of Buddhas and Arahants did so through developing their truthfulness, through developing their Satcha Aditana and their truthfulness, their tireless persistence, their patience and endurance. It wasn't easy. They had to give up many things. They had to struggle and strive, learn to be diligent, learn to overcome laziness, learn to be heedful, learn to be vigilant. And so the mind that wants to do these things, delights in these things, and is zealous in these things, that's the happy and fast path. And the, the mind that wants to do these things but finds it difficult and has to endure a lot of suffering, it really strives. That's, that's the difficult and fast path. And then there's the two other ones. There's the shorter and happy path, the slow and happy path, and the slow and painful path. So ultimately, if we're on the path, that's the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is to see into the Four Noble Truths, to see into sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thought, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. You see, right here, at these points of contact, there are these feelings, there are these perceptions. And usually our perceptions, when we see this is a person, this is John, this is Sally, this is X, Y, Z, 
this is a dog, this is a cat. And with these perceptions, with these labels that we recognize, comes a feeling at every single one. And in that feeling, this is where we hold on to it. This is where we get lost. And then we get lost in the mood and then the mind starts making stories about it. And those stories, that's more volition. That's more action. That's more being lost. And so this is why we have to train a lot. We have to be diligent because we have to see into contact. Right there at that point of contact, that's where we proliferated. That's where we got lost in that label. That's where we got lost in that feeling. And so the more we practice, we start to see the danger of volition, the danger of Mara's puppet shows, that we really do want to close that theatre, that we don't want to follow after those things anymore. Because wherever those moods are, that's where defilement is. That's where the world is. That's where getting lost is. We get stuck in these six senses and their bases. We get stuck in all the various views of the world or delight in going to heaven or delight in, in things in the human realm and sense pleasures. And, and so the Buddha didn't say, for example, somebody living in a household life with five precepts, they couldn't enjoy these things. But he said, empty this raft and travel quickly. Meaning that we have to focus ourselves on what the Dharma is. Because if we're infatuated in those sense pleasures, how can we focus on the Dharma? At the end of our lives, how much of the Dharma will we have realized? Will we be able to let go and move on at the time of death? Have we really contemplated that all the nature of those around us are to die, that all of our possessions are impermanent. And, uh, but this sure, steady path just starts with little drips. It doesn't have to be, you know, your goal is to practice some ridiculous amount. The, the goal starts with what is reasonable, like having a mantra and, and learning first very small amounts and quality over quantity, and willing to look at the mind. And then as that occurs, then one's meditation objects such as the breath will start to deepen. And then with that deepening of peace, one will start to be able to actually see. Knowledge and vision starts to arise. And one can actually see the nature of the khandhas, the nature of consciousness, the nature of feeling, the nature of perceptions, all these things one can actually start seeing for themselves, not as it's written in books, not as it's taught by other people, but with one's own inner eyes, with one's own inner vision. It's pachitan to be personally experienced for each one for ourselves. And so this is why the Buddha said the Dharma is timeless. It doesn't matter. At the time of the Buddha, it's no different to now, to the previous Buddhas, to the previous seven Buddhas. You know, the Dharma is the Dharma. It's beyond time. It's timeless. And so, if we get lost in worrying about the world, we're just stuck in the eightfold. Wind. We're just stuck in the eight worldly winds. You know, we're just stuck in these eight worldly winds. And we have to remind ourselves: where the Buddha sat down, the Bodhisattva on his last night of enlightenment, sat down on the eight bales of hay. Of the eight. Uh, bales of grass and I think that was a symbol of the eight worldly winds and 
So one day, if we want to overcome suffering, we have to give up these eight worldly wounds. There is no other way. And the way we do that is by cultivating the Eightfold Path, by having good Kalyana Mitta, people who will lead us upwards, and questioning our views, questioning our conceits, and, and finding the path that's good for us. As I said, I, I often talk of the six recollections, so like the word Buddha, for example. Buddha is the one who knows, but it's also the Buddha. So if, if we really tune into that, and we're being close to the Buddha, the itipiso bhagava arahang samma sambodho, then we can contemplate these things and actually inspire the mind. And those six recollections, Bhavana, the Buddha said that they are, were capable of even a householder with children at their feet, with many duties, is even con- capable of developing these things. So the, the Dharma isn't just for some hermit on a mountaintop. You know? The Dharma is for everybody in every situation. That this is something that we can actually develop. And by having bhavana, mental cultivation, by having our mantra, by having our sati-sampajanya, our mindfulness and clear comprehension, by having our inspiration, then these things will protect us from worldliness, these things will protect us from defilement. And so the infatuations and the sense desires, the angers and the delusions start to evaporate. They don't have any place to find a footing. And with that then starts to become, we start to grow in the Dharma, we start to flourish in the Dharma. And, and the more we flourish in the Dharma, then the deeper we see into the Dharma. And it all starts just from that turtle, one step at a time, sure of its footing. It's not in a hurry, even starting with five minutes meditation, five minutes mindfulness, and all these things, it's this trip, 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 before one day it becomes a stream. That's the Dhamma talk. We have time for, if there's any question or comment. <laughs> Last week I asked about the girl who was 16 years of age and he was taken by a shark and he was dying. Yeah. And then I said, what's, what's, the, what's it all about? And he said, well, the reason why is because she was born. And from the minute you said that, I mean, ping, ping, and I clicked it in the middle of the week. Well, it's obvious life and death. Death is nothing compared to life. And then I, I spent the whole week saying, now I understand so much more about the, the very, very the steps that you go through in life and death. And death is so, it's just nothing. Life is so important. There's, when you're dead, you're dead. But when you're alive, is it that, that spark, that, that whatever it is that keeps you going, it's just, it's, it's, you can't put it out. You can't put it out. It's always there until you die. But then it's so, you know, your whole life, and the second you die, you don't. This is, you reflect on that thing, so how powerful life is compared to death. Mm. And, and this is why uh, we have to be careful with what we do with our life. Because when we die, we, we don't know 
if we will come into contact with the Dhamma in the next life, we don't know what our circumstances will be. Because even though we're associating with good people and doing good people, good things now, maybe some of our old tendencies in previous lives have been terrible. And so in our next life, we could run into trouble. And so that's why the Buddha really encouraged everybody to strive to be a Sotapan, all of his disciples to strive for the first level of enlightenment. And the first level of enlightenment, the Buddha compared to like the whole earth compared to a little bit of dirt on a finger and, and, and saying that's how much suffering a Sotapanna has given up. So one who's entered the stream, you know, it's incomparable to describe. And he said it's better than sovereignty over the whole earth. So you think of somebody being a well-turning monarch, ruling the whole earth, everybody appreciating that person, the whole world perfect. The Buddha said, no, it's actually better to be a Sotapanna. It's better to be the first stage of enlightenment. And so this is the thing. We, we all get stuck in the trap that we think that if the world was better or, or in the future our life will be like this, but that's just that's relying on the world. So it is good because when we're practicing the Dharma, we do feel good because it's like that light has been set alight and things in our life we can start to see clearly we have access to the Dhamma. So that's why, like Ajahn Chah said, having a determination, like whether one life or 10,000 lives, may I see the Dhamma. And that we don't want for any worldliness. You know, we don't want, you know, for all the worldly wealth and all heaven and all these things, but all we want is for enlightenment, all we want is for spiritual truth. I mean, if those other things come, fine, but at least then our life's purpose is on Magapala Nibbana, which is a, a path, fruit, and, and uh, uh, nirvana, so the highest happiness. And, and so that, that spark that we experience, you know, it's also because we have access at the moment to the Dhamma. And when that's not around, there's no ability uh, to access the Buddha's teachings. So, so usually the best people we're practicing for is for heaven. And so that's why the Dharma is a very difficult thing to see because it's going against the grain of the world. But the more we start to use the Dharma to see into things, then, then you know, that's, that's where that light inside starts to appear because we have a vision that we never had before. Okay, finish the chance. <clears throat>
May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be destroyed. And the blessing. Yata ware wahapura pare parenti sagarang iwang iwayito dinang petanang upakapati chitang patitang tung hanki pamewa sami chitu sabe parentu sangapa chando kanaraso yata manicho tiraso yata sbitio viva chantu Sabaro ko inasatumate pawan pan tarayo sukiti kayuko pawa apewa tanasiri sanichanguta pachaino chataro damawatanti Ayuano Sukhan Alas.